Ezekiel has been a book of sign acts, okay? These are ways that Ezekiel acts things out in his life because he's demonstrating what God wants to communicate to the people of Israel. And in this chapter, he's going to get his toughest one yet. Everybody wants to be a prophet. They think that giving oracles, performing sign acts, it all sounds so cool, so exciting, but they don't realize what being a prophet costs. Hosea, now he had a unique assignment. He had to marry an unfaithful woman, and then he had to deal with a cheating wife. Daniel, he was thrown into a pit of lions. Jeremiah, he was thrown into a different kind of pit. It was waist deep with mud, and he was left there for days. And then you have Isaiah, he was sawed in half. Being a prophet carried a heavy cost. And today we're going to find out what it cost Ezekiel on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a new Christian or a veteran Bible reader, my goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. My name is Luke Taylor, I'm a minister, and I am not a prophet, and I'm really thankful for that. It's interesting that when Ezekiel was called to be a prophet back in chapters 1 through 3 of his book, he was very resistant to the call. He had this really vivid, this really overwhelming encounter with God. I mean, he saw something that very few people will ever see on this earth. He saw God sitting on his throne. And then God called Ezekiel to be his prophet. And it was not like an Isaiah moment where he's like, here I am, send me. You know, it's not like, it wasn't even like Moses or Jeremiah. You know, they kind of meekly protested. They said, oh, well, God, we're not qualified to to be a spokesman for you. Ezekiel went further than that. He got angry with God. He even backtalked God. It's kind of hard to even imagine the God of the universe. He's sitting right there. The angels are, or the, the, you know, these spiritual beings, the cherubim, they're, they're right there around him. And Ezekiel is arguing with God. God says, I have this job for you to do. Ezekiel gets mad at him. It says he was bitter. He was hot. (laughs) He had to sit on a hillside and simmer about it for a week before he finally gave in. Now, why is that? Well, because Ezekiel knew that the calling of a prophet would cost him more than he ever wanted to spend. And you say, wait a minute, wouldn't it be an honor for the God of all creation to personally pick you to be his spokesperson? But Ezekiel knew the calling of a prophet would cost him more than he wanted to spend. Wasn't it possible that the life of a prophet might actually be kind of exciting, kind of an adventure? Wasn't it likely that your name would go down in history if you were to be God's prophet at such a historic moment? Well, yes, and yes, of course. But Ezekiel knew that the calling of a prophet would cost him more than he wanted to spend. And you know what? Ezekiel was absolutely right. And I can't help but reflect on that today. You know, I live in this modern time. Uh, I've talked to lots of Christians or I've seen lots of Christians. I've heard them talking about how they would just love to be a prophet. You know, they think it's, it'd be great to show off this huge spiritual gift. Um, but a genuine prophet of God, that is a costly calling. If you look at what it took in the Bible, 
This is not something you do for fun. It takes a lot out of you. It takes more out of you than most people would think it would. And, and if you've ever, if you're listening, if you've ever desired the office of a prophet, I think this lesson today will probably change your mind. We are at the halfway point now of the book of Ezekiel, and it's not just a turning point in the book of Ezekiel. This is a turning point in the history of Israel as a nation. Jerusalem has just been destroyed. We are in the immediate aftermath of that new reality. For Jerusalem, the worst has happened. For Ezekiel, the worst is yet to come. To find out what happened next, grab your Bible and let's turn to Ezekiel 24. We'll pick it up here at verse 15. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, behold, I am about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban and put, on your, and put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening, my wife died. And on the next morning, I did as I was commanded. So Ezekiel's wife is going to die, and God says he is the one who's going to make it happen. Now, that is a hard sentence to say. You know, it sounds cruel. It sounds harsh. This wasn't even like Hosea's marriage. I mean, Ezekiel really, really loved his wife. And, and I know that because it calls her the delight of your eyes. This was a good relationship. He was thankful for his wife. And now he's going to lose his wife. And God says, I'm going to make it happen. He says it's going to be at a stroke. That implies that it's going to happen very quickly. This was going to be a sudden death. Okay, she hasn't been sick or something like that. And I'm not saying she was killed by some kind of weapon. We don't know exactly how she died, but I mean, just whatever it was, it was something very sudden. And God says, he takes the, the credit, you might say, that he is going to cause it to happen. Note that it does not say it's just her time to go. It doesn't say this is an attack of the devil. You know, it doesn't say anything like that. God says, I am going to take her. He's not passing the buck here. He is, God is, you know, saying I'm sovereign over everything. I'm in control. And he says he is the one who will take Ezekiel's wife. And then to even add salt to the wound here, Ezekiel is told that after she dies, he is to express no negative emotion over this. He says, don't, God says, don't cry about it. Don't show emotion. Don't dress in the clothes of a mourner. Just dress in your normal clothes. Have just a regular day. And, and this is meant to be a sign for the people. It's meant to confuse them. And that's exactly what it does. Verse 19, and the people said to me, will you not tell us what these things mean for us? that you are acting thus? Then I said to them, the word of the Lord came to me, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the delight of your eyes, and the yearning of your soul, and your sons and your daughters whom you left behind shall fall by the sword. And you shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. Your turban shall be on your heads, and your shoes on your feet. You shall not mourn or weep, but you shall rot away in your iniquities and groan to one another. Thus shall Ezekiel be to you a sign according to all that he has done, you shall do. 
when this comes, then you will know that I am the Lord God. So Ezekiel has been asked to do some, you know, some pretty weird things in this book, things that got people's attention, made them wonder, made them ask questions. You know, he's told to walk to the town square, construct a little diorama of Jerusalem and just lay on his side and stare at it. And he was told to do that like day after day after day, just go stare at it. He's told to pack his bags and dig a hole through the, the side of like the wall of his house and just crawl out of it with all his belongings and the whole time not to say a word to anybody about what he's doing. You know, it's he did some strange things. But these things were meant to get people's attention. And I mean, that's exactly what they did. So when Ezekiel's wife dies and the people see him reacting in this strange way, they 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 know not to accept normal behavior from Ezekiel. So they know they know he's an eccentric guy and that his actions here, that they are meant to communicate something to them. So they come to Ezekiel to talk to him about it. They don't they don't offer any words of sympathy. Um, they say, tell us what these things mean for us. You know, what does this mean for us? What's this assigned to what what are you communicating here? Ezekiel has just lost the love of his life and he's showing no emotion about it. So what does this mean? Well, um, he it, it, there's a few different meanings that I kind of take away from this. For one thing, I feel like Ezekiel is acting out God's relationship with Israel. It had just been destroyed. So Ezekiel's kind of representing God and God's wife was Israel, you know, perhaps more specifically Jerusalem and perhaps even more specifically the temple. This is similar to how um, we're called the bride of Christ if you're in the church in the New Testament, okay? In the Old Testament, the bride of God was Israel. They were God's chosen people. And God's most favored place in the midst of his, pe- his people was the temple in Jerusalem. And so now God's wife has been obliterated. God has lost his wife. And God is not showing, I, I, and this is just kind of, I, I feel like there's maybe a couple meanings here. One of the meanings that I kind of take away is that God's just not really showing remorse or regret about it. He's not crying any tears over all this destruction because God had been so mistreated by his his Old Testament wife, he's not even regretful about it when he has to wipe it off the face of the map. Okay, now I'm, I say all this knowing, you know, I'm sure there's a part of God that's heartbroken about how Israel turned out. But he's also kind of, he has to show another side of himself here, the side that, that punishes sin, that lays down the law against lawlessness and lawbreakers. And so God is, God is using this sign act here to, t- to show this to the people. Um, what does this mean for the people? When they hear the news of their temple being destroyed, they are not going to be crying about it. They, they're going to be so focused on their own problems, on simply surviving, they're not going to be crying any tears either. So I think these are the ideas that God is expressing here with the sign act. And so to communicate this to the people, God is using Ezekiel's life. I mean, he's, he's, you might say he's ruining Ezekiel's life. He is, he is, it's, it's hard to be Ezekiel in this chapter. He's using his life as a living sign act. He just killed Ezekiel's wife to communicate this point to the people. Let me read verse 24 again, because I've, I've heard it said that actually ver- verse 24 of chapter 24, that this is the mission statement of the entire book of Ezekiel. It says, thus shall Ezekiel be to you a sign according to all that he has done, you shall do. 
when this comes, then you will know that I am the Lord God. So he says, I am using my servant Ezekiel as a sign. I am, and I'm taking his life. I'm doing whatever I want with it because I'm using it to, to talk to the people. This, this is a little challenging to read. Yeah, I think I'm going to talk about this some more in the wrap up at the end. But you know, guys, when we become servants of God, this is what the New Testament calls us to do. Romans 12, 1, you know, we make ourselves a living sacrifice. Okay, you're, you're a... When they put the sacrifices on the altar, it, you killed it. It died. It was dead. But in the New Testament, we're to be a living sacrifice. We get up on that altar and we die. And then we crawl back on it tomorrow and we die again. We crawl up on there to the next day and we die again. We die to ourselves every single day. Our desires, our wants, our needs. We give God a blank check to do whatever he wants with our lives whenever we sign up for service to him. So, I, I, okay, I'm getting ahead of myself because I want to talk about this in the wrap-up. But, um, th- but that's what I feel like I, when I read this chapter, I read about what Ezekiel went through. I think about the man, the guy who's been writing these words, communicating these messages, what it cost him. And, and yet the New Testament says we shouldn't expect any more than that. You know, we might have to make some significant sacrifices when it comes to following God. The prophets are usually like the most extreme examples. Um, but then the, you could just be a regular person like Job. Job was not a prophet. Job was just a regular guy. And the same thing. God took everything away from Job just to make a point. It was an important point. It was a big point. So, I mean, glory to God. I mean, this is worth the cost. But th- but if you're Job, this is a heavy cost. If you're Ezekiel, this is a heavy cost. And when you follow God, this is what you sign up for. Not that you're necessarily going to have a Job story. You know, I never heard anyone who did. But when you follow God, everything in your life is on the table. Everything is laid down to the Lordship of Christ. And so, as I said, I'll talk about this more at the end. I want to dig into this idea further. Let's go ahead and finish up these verses. Verse 25. I think this will finish up the chapter. As for you, son of man... Surely on the day when I take from from them your... (laughs) Let me start that over. Surely, son of man, when I take from them their stronghold, their joy and glory, talking about that temple, the delight of their eyes and their soul's desire, and also their sons and daughters on that day, a fugitive will come to you to report to you the news. On that day, your mouth will be open to the fugitive and you shall speak and be no longer mute. So you will be assigned to them and they will know that I am the Lord. I want to bring up something that I, I want to admit I had forgotten this. So if you've been listening along, and if you've forgotten this, it's okay. I forgot this too. Ezekiel was told by God back at the beginning of the book, he's not allowed to speak freely. Like for this time that he's a prophet, he was mute. Um, so, so, so I think one way it's been phrased before, if you're someone who can't speak, isn't, isn't that called being dumb? Um, or maybe that's when you can't hear. I'm going to have to look that up now <laughs> that I think about it. The dumb is, is means that you're uh, you're not able to speak or hear or something like that. And so I had forgotten this aspect for Ezekiel. The only words that he has been allowed to say ever since he became a prophet, the only words he was allowed to say are the words that God would put in his mouth. And so for the past few years, 
That's the that's the only literally the only things that have been coming out of Ezekiel's mouth is the stuff that he had put in this book. Okay, he is not he'd talked for twenty four chapters worth, but that was it <laughs> for the past few years. I don't know how that worked for his life. You know, I don't know how he ordered a macchiato at Starbucks, but that's the reality that he's been living in this whole time. But anyway, what these verses that we just read said is that now there is a light at the end of the tunnel. So God says that Ezekiel's mouth is finally going to be opened. And whenever, and this is going to happen when they receive news of Jerusalem's destruction. It's currently being destroyed right now, like in this minute during this chapter. It's under destruction. Once news comes to where Ezekiel is, it's many, many miles away in this town called Tel Abib. Once somebody arrives with the news that the city has been destroyed, Ezekiel is going to be allowed to talk again. And so, as I said, this is a turning point. It's a, it's a big change in the focus of the book. Because at, now that we're at the end of this chapter, the focus is going to move away from Israel, and we're going to start looking at other nations, as well as future events. And so the second half of the book of Ezekiel, this is going to be very different than the first half. Um, but we are closing the book now on this first half of the book, if you know what I mean. So that, that's the end of the first half of Ezekiel. It ends with a message of hope for Ezekiel personally, you know, that he's going to be allowed to, to speak again. You know, Ezekiel, you've been suffering, but there's some relief on the way. And again, his life is a sign because that fact that they've been suffering, but there's relief on the way, that is going to be true for the nation as a whole. I'll close down in a few minutes with some personal application of the chapter that we were studying today. But if you appreciate the Bible study today, you could show your appreciation by number one, saying a prayer. Just say a prayer that that people will find it. Um, or if you want to share it out yourself, you can. But ma mainly, I'm just asking that you say a prayer. You can leave a like or a, hey, make sure you're subscribed. Actually, that's, that's number two right there. Make sure you're subscribed so that you get the next episode. Because next time, what we're going to be talking about is uh, the typology, okay? Now that's a four-syllable word, and I know people don't like big four-syllable words. You don't want to listen to podcasts about big words. I think four syllables is a lot, but that's just me. But anyway, I know you probably don't want to hear about that. Typology is so fascinating, and I want to. I'm. I just wanted to talk about how the journey that Israel went through in the Old Testament, uh, specifically around the wilderness wanderings and getting into the promised land. I want to talk about how that is a picture in the Bible of what the Christian life is supposed to be like. So that basically the, everything that Israel went through during that, you know, 40, 80, however many year experience of getting out of Egypt, getting into the promised land, all that stuff. It is a reflection of the new Testament Christians spiritual walk. And so I'll talk about why I say that I'll break all that down I, want, I just want to show how deep the Bible is and how prophetic it is and how we can look at the stories. If we kind of take a big picture look, um, all the links that we can find between things in the Old Testament and how they're meant to teach us about our life today. So anyway, I'll get into all that next time. Um, make sure you're subscribed, though, so that you can receive that episode whenever it's time to drop. Typology. Yeah, that is four syllables. I thought I better make sure about that before I move on. <laughs> okay. Um, if you have a question about anything I talked about today or anything I talked about in the past, you can leave a comment or send me an email, cross references podcast at gmail.com. 
And I, lately I've had like way more comments than I have time to respond to. So I'm just trying to pick at least one to talk about each week. Philip is a guy who recently responded to an episode about the rapture that I did. And so I'm going to read his whole comment here. If you want to track down all these verse references on your own time, you know, you're, you're welcome to do that. I did. And I want to try to summarize it and explain my response to Philip. So Philip said he's talking about the rapture here. And he's against the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture, although I don't know what it is that he believes in, but he's against a pre-tribulation rapture. So he says the subject of first Thessalonians chapter four, verses 13 through 18 is the dead in Christ and how living believers will reunite with them on that day. The sorrow not of verse 13 corresponds with the comfort of verse 18. It is the first resurrection, key phrase there, the first resurrection of the dead at the last day at the coming of the Lord. And he then he gives a bunch of verses here, or verse references, John 6, 39, John 6, 40, John 6, 44, John 6, 54, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, Revelation 20, verse 5. And then he says, it has nothing to do with a pre-tribulation or a pre-wrath rapture. Now, like I said, if this is something that's a subject matter you're interested in, you can go track all these verses down yourself. Here's what I'm going to, I'll just, I looked it all up and I'm going to summarize here what I said to Philip. So Philip's argument revolves around equating the first resurrection with the last day and equating those things also with the coming of the Lord. And by the equating, I mean saying that they all happen at the same time that the last day, the coming of the Lord, and the first resurrection, that all these terms are referring to stuff that happens at the same time, uh, I guess, on that last day. So I look at all those different biblical biblical terms, I look at them as having slightly different meanings. And, um, and so anyway, the linchpin holding all of Philip's theory together is this phrase, the first resurrection in Revelation 20, verse 5. So I'm going to read, I want to explain what the first resurrection is why it is not the same thing as the rapture of the church. But Philip is saying that all these things are the same thing. Let's look at what it talks about. The I'm going to start at verse 4 of Revelation 20. It says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So this phrase here, the first resurrection. So this is referring to an event that happens after the tribulation, because the second coming of Christ, that is Revelation 19, and that is when Jesus comes down and takes control of the planet. So that's the end of the tribulation period. All of the believers who died during the tribulation, they are resurrected right here in Revelation 20, okay? And the Bible calls this the first resurrection. Philip is saying that this is also the rapture of the church that's spoken about in 1 Thessalonians 4, okay? I don't agree with that. I think 1 Thessalonians 4 is talking about Christians who have died and they are brought out of the grave. So in a sense, they are being resurrected as well. But this is where this phrase, the first resurrection, makes it a little tricky. Because wait, if the first resurrection is something that happens after the tribulation, then doesn't that mean 1 Thessalonians 4's rapture can't happen until after the seven-year tribulation? Okay, if you, hopefully you're tracking with all that. The, so Philip is saying this proves, since it's called the first resurrection, this means that it has to happen 
Um, that means that the, the resurrection in 1 Thessalonians 4 has to happen in Revelation 20, that they have to be the same event. Here's what I said to Philip, okay? Three words. Was Jesus resurrected? All right, those were my, that was my three-word answer to Philip. <laughs> I would try to make a response as short and simple as possible, because when someone types you a paragraph and then you type them a paragraph, man, you could go so many different directions. Then the paragraphs turn into two or three paragraphs and the conversation spirals out of control and you lose focus. And I just wanted to like stick to the linchpin, okay? This phrase, the first resurrection, does this mean it's the first time that there's any resurrections in the Bible, okay? Well, I'm sure any Christian out there, including Philip, will agree that Jesus was resurrected. Obviously, the answer is yes, Jesus was resurrected. So, shouldn't that have been the first resurrection? You know? Well, obviously, that's not the resurrection that Revelation 20 is talking about. When Revelation 20 is talking about the first resurrection, here's what it's talking about. It means the first resurrection after Jesus comes back, okay? Because there's going to be two resurrections in Revelation 20, the resurrection of the redeemed, and then the resurrection of the damned. The first resurrection is at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, the resurrection of the redeemed, redeemed, and then the second resurrection is at the great white throne judgment, and that's at the end, okay? That's why it's distinguishing those different resurrections right there. It's saying they're not at the same time. Everyone's going to be resurrected, the righteous to eternal life and the, the damned to eternal damnation. So um, that's why it's saying there's a first and second resurrection. Revelation 20 doesn't mean it's the first resurrection in all of human history, okay? Obviously, it's not because Jesus was resurrected, okay? So it's not the first resurrection ever. And so therefore, there's no reason for me to say that the resurrection in 1 Thessalonians 4 has to be wait has to wait until Revelation 20 because that one's the first resurrection. No, it's a different resurrection, but it's it's not the one in Revelation 20. There are different ones, and there's no reason for me to think that they have to be the same, the same one. Okay. So I appreciate Phyllis' message. You know, I, I'm always trying to understand other Christians better. I want to understand, like, if you don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, I mean, that's okay. You know, I don't, that's I'm not gonna get upset with anybody about that. I really yeah, I just try to say what I believe and other Christians are welcome to say what they believe and they can do their own podcast. They can respond to mine. I I mean, I'm all for it. Philip was nice about it. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not dogging him or anything. I appreciate hearing what, what other Christians believe and why they believe the things that they believe. Okay. If somebody doesn't believe in a pre-trib rapture, that's fine. I don't think they're a heretic or something like that is what I'm saying. But what I want to hear what they think. If it makes more sense than what I think, then, you know, maybe I'll change my mind and, and think what you think. But in this case, Philip's theory here was based on this idea that no resurrections happened prior to the first resurrection of Revelation 20. And so I just don't think that's the case. So that's why I don't I don't think his theory really holds together. So anyway, that's my response to Philip there. Th thank you all for hanging tight during a mailbag. <laughs> I'll do another one next week. I'm just going to kind of move through them a little bit slowly. Closing thoughts for today. And just to recap a little bit. God took Ezekiel's wife and God told Ezekiel, I want you to show no emotion about this. Okay. No mourners, no crying, no sackcloth and ashes, none of that stuff. Be emotionless. And this is going to be a sign to the people of what God is doing with the temple in Jerusalem. So God has destroyed their temple. Do they care? Are, are they crying about it? 
And God, he had to wipe out his Old Testament bride right here. I mean, is God crying about it? And, and you know, it's, it's hard to say, all right? I mean, I know one part of God had to be heartbroken because of how Israel had turned out. But on the other hand, they had spurned his attempts to bring them back for so long, they had become so extremely evil. He might not have felt that bad about it, but, you know, by the time he finally had to drop the hammer on him, I don't know. I can't speak for God. But what we know from this chapter is that this is the really tricky thing. God was using the death of Ezekiel's wife to make a point here, right here for the people. And this point, I mean, this it's just kind of a hard pill to swallow, you know, to have someone die to make this point to the people. I mean, it's like, wasn't, wasn't there another way? Was there any other way that this could have been done, God? Did you have to, to kill Ezekiel's wife just to make this point here to the people? So I'm just warning you guys, get ready to take some tough medicine today. <laughs> this is probably not going to be a feel-good message as we go through it. And I guess it really hasn't been the whole episode, but <laughs> buckle up. Okay, I'm going to start with the story. And this is a real-life story. This happened at my workplace um, just a few weeks ago, as of the t- as of the time that I'm recording this. Um, I have been working for this nonprofit organization for the past year. It's a Christian radio station. And I got a call on... A Saturday? No, it was a, it was Labor Day. Okay, this happened on Labor Day. We all had the day off, but I got a call from my boss that my workplace was on fire, <laughs> like literally on fire. Now, by the time I got there, the fire department had already put the fire out. But I mean, I hopped in my vehicle, I flew right out there, um, and so what happened? What caused the fire is we have a generator, and it kicks on every single Monday morning. It runs for like ten minutes. It's just like this routine thing that happens every week. But this time there was, it's a long story. There is a malfunction and the generator ended up catching a wooden deck that was above it, caught it on fire. This is like attached to my workplace. Okay. And of all the times for this generator, it just goes off every week, but of all the times for this malfunction to happen and for it to catch something on fire, it happens on a day that nobody is there. Because this was Labor Day. Everybody had the day off. So it sounds like bad luck, right? Like, this sounds like really, really bad luck. But here's what happened. One of my coworkers pulls in that day, and he, he had to go, he had to move a file from one place to another on a computer. Like, it was just a very simple little thing he had to do. And he pulls in at, at my workplace right as the fire is getting going. Okay, like these is just starting to happen. He goes and gets the hose. He tries to spray it down. But like this fire, it had just gotten to the point that it was like just too big for a hose to put it out. So he had to call the fire department. Fire department got out there in minutes. And when it was all said and done, the only thing we lost that day was that deck that was over over the generator. That was the only thing that I mean, it got torched. It was had to be like rebuilt. But I mean, that was the only thing. The whole building, my whole entire workplace could have been gone. (laughs) Nobody would have been there, except that my coworker had just happened to show up at just the right time. Just and here, and let me, it gets even more amazing. I mean, I just want us to think about this for a minute. So, my this guy, his name is Ben. He didn't have to come in that day and move those files. I mean, he was trying to, he was kind of just going above and beyond, just trying to make sure something got done. It didn't have to be done, but he did it anyway. And then, also, he could normally remote in from his home and just do it over the computer, like through the internet. He could have remoted into the computers from his home and moved the files. But that morning, 
the internet that was at his home, it wasn't working. So he hopped in his car and he buzzed out to where I work and he went to move them in person. He didn't even have to do this. He was just trying to go above and beyond that day. And uh, listen, of all the times that day that he could have showed up to move those files, he shows up right as the fire is taking off. I mean, this was a quick little thing. If he had got there 10 minutes earlier, he, he could have done it before he even saw the smoke, before anything even started smoking. And if he had been there 10 minutes later, the whole station could have been up in flames. I mean, that is how perfect the timing was that he shows up. I mean, it's just one of those things, you know, truly God was in just minute control of every detail that went down that day. You know, he had he had been there at just the right moment to save the whole building. And and it's not like, you know, Ben, ben didn't hear a voice from God saying, go to the station and move the files right now. It wasn't like that. Ben just, he, I mean, he was being led by God. He didn't even know it. And it just shows how, how sovereign God is. You know, this was God's supernatural providence on display. Even now, weeks later, I'm just like, it's mind-blowing to me. Just like how sovereign God was over the events of that day. Like, you know, we came close to not only losing the entire radio station, but like, I mean, my job, you know, my livelihood. I Today, I might have had to go out and go job hunting, but instead I get to sit here and, and just tell you about how good God is. So it was just an amazing story from my life. This happened about a month ago. I mean, if, as I guess whenever you're listening to it, you'll hear it, but for me recording this, you know, this is, this was just a few weeks back, but, but okay, here's another thing. Somebody could also say this. This would be a, a reasonable question though. Wait a second. If God is so much in control, why did there have to be a fire in the first place? Like if God was that concerned about stopping the fire, couldn't he have just worked out the details so that we didn't even have this mechanical issue in the first place? You know, that's an interesting question because, well, of course God could have, right? It, don't we agree? He could have done that if he wanted to. And yet, as I look at this situation and I look at all the ways that God came through, I, I just look at it all. I just trust that God had a reason that he allowed that fire to even happen in the first place. In the NIV application commentary on this chapter of Ezekiel that we've been talking about today, it has this section. It talks about God's set purposes. And I would like to read this for you here. It says, We tend to believe that God's loving plan for our lives must surely include reasonable health, a job, a spouse, and a decent standard of living. And if any of these things are absent from our lives, we tend to place the responsibility not on God, but on the forces of evil in the world. God wants us to have these things, we theorize, but we are caught in the crossfire of the cosmic battle. On the other hand, or however, nowhere in his word does God promise us such an easy ride through life, nor does he pass off the responsibility on others. He is the sovereign Lord, which means that even on the battleground, the buck stops with him. Ezekiel's wife dies not because God is powerless to prevent such a thing happening, but because God has a significant purpose to accomplish through that evil also. It is a painful providence for a prophet to bear, but nonetheless, 
he must receive this bitter cup too from the hand of his loving father. As Job, another Old Testament figure equally tormented by God, put it so succinctly, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? So again, that's a quote right there. It's from the NIV application commentary on Ezekiel. It's by Ian DeGuid. And it's just, it, it really sums up everything I'm saying here today. God's in control and he has his reasons and we go through crap sometimes and we don't understand it. But God is good. He has a purpose. Even if I had lost my job in the fire, I have to trust that, that I would have been okay. That if, you know, if God allowed my job to be torched, that just means he had something else for me to do. And whenever you accept God's control of your life, it means accepting the good and the bad. You know, this month I had something good. Next month I might have something bad. But God is in total control regardless of what happens. And God's purposes for what he allows us to go through are always good. Go read Romans 8. He has good reasons. And it's, hey, it might be like Ezekiel. It might not necessarily be my good, but it's for the greater good. It's for the good of those who love God. And this is what Ezekiel had finally learned. If you remember from when we started this series two years ago, Ezekiel was downright livid with God whenever God called him to be a prophet. Like Ezekiel, he had no interest. He wanted no part in all this. And as we look at what happened here, look at what happened in chapter 24. That, that seems pretty understandable. Sometimes following God's plan can mean sacrificing things that you never thought you would lose. We tend to think that God's plan just means I'm always going to be happy. But again, this is not the case. I, I hope you haven't turned this off yet today. I know this is not a happy, feel-good message, okay? God's plan can mean giving things up that you never would have said yes to when you started down the path. But the question is, will you keep walking with God anyway? For Ezekiel's part, he did. I, I want to read another note here. This is from the ESV Study Bible. I just found this really illuminating here. It's a note on verse 24, where it said, Thus shall Ezekiel be to you a sign. And my note in the Study Bible says this, Ezekiel has performed other symbolic actions, but this must be the most painful. It elicits no protest. Ezekiel has learned that there is nothing God cannot ask of him. So as we close today, that's my question for you. Is there anything that God cannot ask of you? And if the answer is no, and listen, I'm not saying you're not saved or something like that, okay? We're all at different places in our sanctification, okay? But part of the sanctification process, we learn to accept whatever God puts in our path as part of God's good purposes. And we submit ourselves to those things. My pastor, a few weeks back, he read this passage. You know, I'd read this before countless times, but I'd, I'd never really stopped and thought about what it's saying. It's Luke 17, starting at verse 7, verses 7 through 10. This is Jesus speaking. He says this, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? 
Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So what Jesus is saying here, don't act like you just deserve all this acclaim for doing your Christian duty. You're not a hero because you did the right thing. You just did what you were supposed to. Our job is to serve God. Our job is to write that blank check to our li- for our lives, give it to God, say, do, what, do whatever you want with me. I am yours. I am sold out to you. There is nothing that's going to, I'm going to let come between me and you. I am a living sacrifice day in, day out, tomorrow, the next day. That is what I signed up for when I started down this Christian path. That is what I'm going to do. That's a hard thing to say. You know, don't say it lightly. I mean, think about the, count the cost here. This is what Jesus, he didn't just try to get as many people to follow him as possible. He's like, no, no, no. Slow yourself down. You believe just because I said that? No, count the cost. Are you really going to mean this? Are you going to walk this out? Are you really going to make God Lord? Can you still deal with it if paying your tithes and being generous doesn't mean that you're going to become wealthy in your personal life? Can you still deal with it if you serve God faithfully for years in a local church and it only leads to people gossiping about you and spreading rumors about you? Or if you do the right thing for years, but suddenly you get a bunch of health problems or you serve God faithfully, but then your kids have problems or your grandkids have problems. You step out in faith, you move to a new town, you get a new job, and then your workplace burns to the ground. What are you going to do? Do you give up on God? Do you walk away from God? Do you turn your back on God and feel like, well, he owed me? See, that parable that Jesus is telling, that's about our attitudes in these moments. Are you going to have the right attitude? Are you going to feel like God owed you something and you should have got what you deserve? No, that's not the right attitude from the servant to the master. Okay, this parable is not about what you're going to do. It's about the attitude that you're going to have about it. See, sometimes we can put on a straight face. Kind of like Ezekiel in this passage today, we, we look one way on the outside, but we're feeling a different way on the inside. And, you know, sometimes toward God, you know, sometimes, hey, we still show up at church, we raise our hands during worship, we put on a good show, but inside we're, we're, we're simmering at God, we're angry at him, we're like Ezekiel on that hillside, and we're like, ugh, I never should have become a Christian, this hasn't gotten me anything. Jesus says, this is about your attitude in those moments, okay? What is the attitude that you're going to have about the troubles that you face in this life? I can't answer that question for you. You've got to answer that for yourself. I'm going to tell you how Job and how Ezekiel answered it. These are two guys. They probably had more reason than you do to question God's fairness. And yet what they said was, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. What are you going to say? when this Christian walk costs you more than you thought it was going to, when you don't get the rewards that you thought you were heading toward, what's your attitude gonna be? I think we're all gonna be tested in the days ahead about our devotion to God. Thanks for listening to the Cross References Podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you, God has his purposes and they are good.